0: This is Getting Lit with Linda Mora, the podcast where you can come and get lit, Canadian lit, that is. Join Linda as she talks about authors in Canada and sometimes with them, using her expertise to shed light on recent and not so recent writers. And now, get set for Getting Lit with Linda. Hi there, I'm Linda Mora. Welcome to this episode of Getting Lit with Linda. Originally, I recorded this episode in Montreal. Today, however, I'm in Sutton, Quebec, and in the background, you might be able to hear the summer crickets and the birds chirping. We're still in the middle of warm weather, and it seems a little incongruous after this kind of day, a seemingly peaceful summer day, that's really set in contrast with what's going on in the rest of the world. As I say, I had actually recorded this episode earlier, but then on August 4th, 2020, there was an explosion in the port of Beirut, Lebanon, where 2,750 tons of ammonium nitrate were being stored in a warehouse. So I'm re-recording this episode to acknowledge all those who have been affected and are suffering because of this event, all those who died, all those who lost loved ones. I'm going to dedicate this episode to you. I'm doing so because this is the same port that had been rendered unusable during the Lebanese Civil War, the same one that's referred to in Rawi Hajj's novel De Niro's Game, the novel that's the subject of this particular podcast. This kind of peaceful day reminds me of a moment, though, when my dear nephew was about seven. We were playing in the basement of my parents' house and trying to make a fort out of sofa cushions and blankets. Anyone who's ever tried to play with children in this way, I know that you know what I'm talking about. That real effort to make sure the cushions are poised or perfectly balanced against each other so that you can strategically drape blankets over them. I thought I was being helpful by instructing my nephew about where to place some of the cushions. But then he stopped and looked right into my eyes. He paused before he dramatically announced, Auntie Linda, you're being bossy. I was really surprised and I immediately apologized and so we proceeded with our task. But then I began to notice that he was ordering me around. So finally I turned to him and I said, hey, now you're being bossy and didn't you just tell me that it wasn't okay to behave that way? Well, he replied matter-of-factly, that was the past me. This is the present me. (laughs) I admired his savvy, but it's That kind of disorienting turnabout or swift change in character that I want us to think about. I think about that when I try to imagine the plight of Bassam, the protagonist of Rawi Hajj's De Niro's Game. If you heard my very first podcast, you'll already know that this particular series is going to focus on authors from the province of Quebec in Canada. And as I said in that podcast, it's true that French is the dominant language here in Quebec. But we have this robust body of English language authors, so all the authors, this time around anyway, will be English language authors. At a later date, I promise I'll look at French-speaking, or um, rather French-language Québécois authors. Hodge is the first author I'm discussing for this podcast series, and he's really what I would call one of my top shelf authors. He has other novels to his credit, one of these including his remarkable book, Cockroach, which was published in 2008, and the other being Carnival in 2012. But De Niro's Game is really my personal favourite, and I'm definitely not alone in thinking that. The novel was nominated for and won the Impact Dublin Literary Award in 2006, and that was among several other distinctions. Just in case you're wondering I don't often feel compelled to corroborate public opinion about books or movies that sweep up prizes. Sometimes I even work against popular opinion. James Cameron's The Titanic comes to mind as a prime example of what I consider a disaster, and I'm not trying to evoke here the event it represents the actual sinking of the Titanic. The book by Hajj? From my point of view, however, that's a thoroughly impressive book. When the novel opens... Our protagonist, Bassam, is a young man trying desperately to navigate the ravaged streets of Beirut during the Lebanese Civil War. Most of you will know that the Civil War took place between 1975 and 1991. Among other things, Bassam is deeply troubled by how to act and when to act, what to do for the sake of survival, of simply existing in this kind of context. He seems to have about three options. The first is to join the military. The second is to engage in criminal acts. And the third is just to leave the country altogether. Millions of people left the country in this period. So our protagonist would not be alone in terms of wanting to flee. The problem is that each decision he considers comes with a complication or with obligations or responsibilities or risks. In part, the risks are connected to his mother and his girlfriend. The obligations or responsibilities are also related to his attachment to Beirut, from which his entire family lineage extends. But mostly, it's related to his beloved friend George. George and Bassam were childhood best friends, and they've grown to adulthood together in this city ravaged by war. And so, the novel opens... This way. Ten thousand bombs were falling, and I was looking for George. I love this opening sentence. That opening sentence is reiterated with slightly different permutations throughout the book. Ten thousand bombs, ten thousand stars, ten thousand soldiers. The phrase serves as a kind of refrain in the novel, and to my mind it's also a way of conveying the normalcy of crisis. At the same time, it crucially highlights Bassam's priorities. He's searching for his friend in this moment of crisis and violence. But his search isn't just literal. It becomes emblematic of his pursuit of the friend he used to have. That friend he used to know, but who has since substantially changed in character, and perhaps irrevocably so. It makes me think of that really remarkable concluding line to F. Scott Fitzgerald's The Great Gatsby, and so we beat on, boats against the current, borne back ceaselessly into the past. Bassam will be borne back ceaselessly in this way, in search of both his past me and of his past friend. Initially, though, the two work cooperatively against a larger political system, and it's presumably to protect their loved ones, but it's also to protect their friendship. What's increasingly at stake in the novel is not only their respective family members or their lovers, but especially this allegiance between them. What I really love about this novel is that it's told entirely from Bassam's point of view. It's a first-person narrative that operates in such a way so that George's own story is enveloped by, contained in that of Bassam. It's a really smart literary technique. The result is that George's voice is, and must be, mediated by that of Bassam. And so the unfolding of their stories suggests a kind of intimacy shared between these two. What the novel shows, therefore, is not only how the city and its inhabitants in general are being undermined by the war, but also specifically the friendship between Bassam and George. Now, you've probably already guessed the title of the novel emerges from George's nickname, De Niro, and it's therefore his game that's being played. It's a game that comes from his own shifting identity, George's present me, to borrow my nephew's terminology, becomes more and more unintelligible to Bassam. It's less and less recognizable. In fact, his character and his actions depart so significantly from the George that Bassam once knew, that Bassam becomes deeply troubled, especially since George has already provided a point of identification and stability for Bassam. That is, since Bassam is attached to and identifies with George, As George deviates from his previous moral commitments and civic interests, so must Bassam. I say must, but really Bassam does it very reluctantly and in comparatively minimal ways. He doesn't change in quite the same degree. So George builds his sense of self and his sense of agency through the Christian militia. And he's very comfortable making his way through a, a world of drugs and depravity. But Bassam really only experiments with some low-level criminal activity at first. He's unsettled by this world, and he can only go so far. Their friendship is ultimately tested by this kind of divergence by Bassam's unwillingness. It's also tested by a series of betrayals in which First George and, well, arguably Bassam engage. The stark disparity, the real difference in their decisions, means that that friendship becomes increasingly strained and tenuous, and for Bassam, increasingly unrecognizable and disorienting. Where's the past George, whom he loved so well? Just as importantly other questions are raised, who is Bassam in this unsettling context, and will Bassam even make it out of Beirut alive? Will his moral compass be skewed by all that happens around him and by all in which he engages? Bassam is really in the process of trying to figure out the former. That is, he's trying to figure out who he is while doing that the latter. That is, he's trying to make it out of that city alive. We see this journey in three parts. That is, the novel is structurally divided in three parts. The first is titled Roma, the second Beirut, and the third Paris. And each of these sections addresses a major event in Bassam's life, and it compels him to make really important decisions about the present me he chooses to enact, and it shifts in every circumstance. He's especially constrained by this sense of masculinity that compels him to behave in very specific ways, even as it's paradoxically a vital defense mechanism Ultimately, this kind of masculinity dictates how he should behave, and it undermines what he wants when it doesn't actually put him in danger. There's this really poignant moment, one I I quite like, when he takes it upon himself to find tampons for a young female neighbor who's just started menstruating. He has no money himself, so what he does is grabs a gun and waves the gun around and steals it from a local, that is, he steals the tampons from a local grocer. The local grocer, though, is a member of his own community. So he's at once both a thug and a hero. He's robbing a local neighbor, but he's doing that to provide for a young, vulnerable woman. Of course, he only wants to play the hero. But he finds himself negotiating these divided loyalties or shirking moral obligations or just coming up short and being entirely unresponsive in moments of crises. He feels ashamed about some of his conduct, and so he defines himself alternately as a reptile with moist skin, or a vulture that watched from above, or as a creature closer to dogs than to men. The predatory and animal imagery won't elude you, and it's relevant. However, I don't want us to judge his character too far, because we have to remember that he's just a badly traumatized human being who's borne witness to the loss of people he loved, which means he finds it really difficult to connect with anyone, including his own mother, including Rana, and including, of course, George. The pressure to behave in ways that are defined as masculine translate into his giving up meaningful attachment to others, including his mother, including his girlfriend. And this is why he struggles and struggles and struggles. Now, George has seemingly fewer difficulties and certainly less compunction about behaving in ways that are identified as masculine in that context. I'll note here that the reference to De Niro that we talked about as applying to him is also a reference to actor, yes, Robert De Niro, and his appearance in The Deer Hunter, the movie in which, along with Vietnamese and American soldiers, he engages in a game of Russian roulette. Well, it's very obviously a deadly game, and we're meant to understand that the implications of that game carry over into this novel. If that's not enough to instill a sense of foreboding, the three epigraphs, those quotations we sometimes find at the outset of the novel that direct our attention to and distill the thematic interest of the said work, the three epigraphs to this book deepen that sense of foreboding. It's pretty grim, even before we open up the first few pages of the novel. One of the three epigraphs is a reference to Jean-Paul Sartre's political drama Les Mensal, and it reads like this. Et puis après, Est-ce que tu te imagines qu'on peut gouverner innocemment? This roughly translates as, and then after that, do you imagine that you can govern innocently? Sartre's play engages with questions of politics and existentialism, conveys a sense of despair and hopelessness in which this novel is also saturated. No one, but no one, is going to get out of this inferno without some sense of culpability, including and especially Bassam, if they even get out of it at all. Of course, the epigraph in the context of the novel begs the question, after what exactly? And who, we might be tempted to ask, is imagining that they can govern innocently? I'm not going to give that part away. You're going to have to read the novel to find out. Allow me to note, though, that the forging of intimacy or allegiances in this novel seems to be virtually impossible for everyone. Bassam's Uncle Naim, who plays a small part in the first section of the book, he offers us a classic example. He sends a letter to Bassam to offer his condolences for yet another loss and to express how much he longs to be with him, especially in these hard times. He's clearly a father figure to Bassam, who had already lost his father at some point before the novel even opens. But make no mistake, his uncle has been named a communist by the military, and he therefore resides in West Beirut, where the largely Muslim factions resided. Bassam resides in the predominantly Christian East Side. And so his uncle reaches out to him, not entirely for these declared sentimental reasons. He also has some political motives in there. Bassam doesn't know, therefore, to whom to, tr- to turn or who to trust. It's understandable that what Bassam wants most of all is to flee, which may seem unheroic, but I think we can appreciate why that might be so in view of the real dangers of the place. It's worsened for him by the political commitments he feels obliged to make and by the notions of masculinity that emanate from that context. Yet the fantasy of escape, it persists and persists, and it takes several different incarnations, some that, well, remain fantasies for a good part of the book. He does make one attempt to flee to Paris, and that's, of course, the title of the third section. I won't tell you whether that attempt is successful or not. You're going to have to read the book to find out for yourself. But when he makes the attempt he tries to insert himself into that geographical context, which has its own history and has its own set of expectations. It's clearly a geographical context that's not his own, but one that he's only familiar with based on history books. It has these imperial permutations that don't identify or recognize Bassam as a legitimate subject. He is, to put it simply, not one of them. So reading about history and experiencing it are two different things. Bassam discovers this, of course. He recreates the narratives he's learned from history books in order to recast himself in heroic terms. But these attempts really evoke a sense of pathos, sadness, bleakness, despair. At one moment, he describes himself as coolly puffing, revolutionary cigarettes while his soldiers pulled all the jewels from the corpses, wore the aristocratic wigs, mocked their feminine manners, frisked them for coins. Of course, Bassam has no soldiers. He's not involved in the ransacking of dead bodies, and he's anything but so cool. On the one hand, he describes how he wears a sweater that his mother made for him. On the other hand, he imagines how As if I had lived here once before I trace my steps back from the sack castles and through the glorious sights of rolling heads and falling wigs, I, a victorious soldier, return to my small room. I love that image of the small room. It suggests his confinement in isolation, and it shows that he doesn't really have much agency. His options are few. He's consumed by his desire to return to Roma. And again, I'll remind you, that's the title of the first section of the book. And that desire suggests a kind of commitment to a life and a self that is part of the past me. However, his real and present me is a legacy of a man who's been badly traumatized and disconnected from others. Whether or not he survives that present moment is what I leave to you, my listeners, to discover. This is the takeaway section of the episode of the podcast. What I plan to do in this section is simply recommend a book or an article or an author Uh, perhaps a book I've read recently, or a book I've been chatting about with someone, something that I think I want to pass along to the listeners. So the novel that I've picked for today, and yes, it is a novel, is a novel by Megan Gale Coles, uh, and it's called Small Game Hunting at the Local Coward Gun Club. I happen to be chatting with my aunt about this book, which is why I've picked it for today. My aunt and I disagreed about it initially. Um, She found it very hard to get into, and I urged her to keep going. After 30 or 40 pages, I promised her that she would find it rewarding. She found it very challenging, and I promise you that you will if you pick up this novel. You may even wonder why I'm recommending it. But it did get shortlisted for CBC's annual Battle of the Books Canada Reads 2020. And it was also a 2019 Scotiabank Giller finalist. Again, I've said it before, I'll say it again. Prizes don't determine how I feel about particular books. But I really think, well, they're they're spot on with this one. I really love this book. The thing is, it's not the kind of book that's going to make you feel good. It's not a heartwarming novel. It's not like Elizabeth Gilbert's Eat, Pray, Love, as I say in an article in The Conversation. It really is a challenging, painful, thorny read. It begs the question of why I would recommend it. I think at bottom, we have to remember that reading isn't always fundamentally about pleasure. By the time I finished reading this novel, I felt wickedly angry. In fact, I think I was angry for about three or four days. So. What she does that is so extraordinary, and I should mention that this is her debut novel, that's also extraordinary. But what she does in this novel that's extraordinary is to craft the story so finely that on the one hand, you feel attached to the main female characters. But on the other hand, you become enraged by how they're treated. And that's, I think, what Coles is trying to do, gain or connect with her readers so that she can make her readers understand what women often go through. It's a very smart strategy and she crafts it very well. The language is beautiful, or um, at least uh, the language very accurately reflects the different kinds of characters who are represented in the novel. So for these reasons alone already, I would recommend picking up this book. I also happen to really like East Coast writers, and so Coles falls into this tradition of East Coast writing that includes people like um, Alistair MacLeod or, well, Lucy Maude Montgomery, but also Lisa Moore. Michael Crummey is another writer who comes to mind, Donna Morrissey, Michael Winter... If you know these writers, you'll know what I'm talking about. If you don't, stick with me because I promise you I'll talk about these writers and probably Coles again in future episodes of this podcast. So it's not just these characters who are so well delineated. It's also the kind of landscape or context that she's representing or depicting. She sets the scene in the middle of a blizzard. And of course, it's a nod to the St. John's climate even though it's also a form of pathetic fallacy. She's trying to mirror the internal strife of several characters. In any case, I won't say more. I promise to talk about this novel at greater length in another podcast episode, but this is your takeaway for today. I think if you have a spare day or two, pick up Megan Gale Cole's Small Game Hunting at the local Coward Gun Club. I'll look forward to hearing from you and stay tuned for the next episode of getting lit with linda in which i talk about madeline tian that was getting lit with linda hosted by linda mora if you have a topic you would like to see covered write to us at getting lit with linda at gmail.com until next time we hope you continue to get lit